man to eye when you're talking to me Wanna see in your soul when you lie Don't try and tell me that you couldn't foresee What everybody reckoned was a matter of time I'm J.R. Woodward and this is our social landscape where I'm joined by investigative journalist Jesse Singer. The writing has appeared in The Guardian, Village Voice, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic, among numerous other outlets. Jesse's also the author of the acclaimed 2022 book, There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price. And this is what initially caught my attention. Like a lot of good journalism, Jesse weaves a sociological perspective into their writing, in this case with regard to the role social inequality plays in our interpretation of death and injuries commonly called accidents. Jesse's research shows clearly that many so-called accidents are completely preventable, particularly those involving the poor and people of color. And instead of placing blame at the feet of corporations whose only motive is profit, not safety, and with the government's consistent creep towards deregulating industry, people often focus on the individual actor and what they might have done differently. Consistent with C. Wright Mill's term, the sociological imagination, this focus on private behavior allows large-scale public structural factors to go unanalyzed. A clear example can be found with the Norfolk Southern train derailment back in February this year, which we briefly discussed in the interview. 38 train cars carrying hazardous materials derailed and the health effects from water and air contamination are still being analyzed. Despite long-standing worker complaints and concerns over safety at the railway, Norfolk Southern vigorously fought government safety regulations, one of which, related to the braking system, most experts agreed might have been able to stop the derailment. Instead, the company will pay some fines, face no criminal charges, and go on with business as usual until the next so-called accident. During our short chat, Jesse tells me the impetus for writing this book. We then address the nuts and bolts of their argument before finishing with some suggestions to reduce the amount of unnecessary and unequal deaths and injuries we see in America. Okay, well thank you. Uh, Jesse Singer, welcome to our social landscape and thanks for joining me. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. So can you walk me through your background, uh, your bio, what made you decide to pursue this particular research and writing topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, My background's in investigative journalism, um, and um, I certainly came to this book um, with those skills, um, but it's never a book I really wanted to write. Um, It was sort of hoisted on me. Um, It's dedicated to um, a man named Eric Ng. Eric was a New York City high school math teacher um, and my best friend. He was killed in 2006 um, when he was 22 years old, riding his bike on a separated biking and walking path that runs along the west side of Manhattan. Um, We lived in New York City, um, where I still live. He was killed there by a driver who had mistakenly turned and entered the path. um, And that driver was drunk and speeding and went to prison. And for 11 years, that was the end of the story um, until... A different man rented a truck and followed the exact same route as my best friend's killer, except this second man intentionally turned onto the path. Um, He killed eight people and injured 11 uh, on this biking and walking path in an act of vehicular terrorism. And I remember being so shocked about how these two routes to harm followed the exact same literal path. Um, but had different intentions. And it made me look into where my best friend was killed. And I found that other people had been killed in the exact same place he was killed. 
in a similar way. You know, every time the drivers were different, some were distracted, some were lost, some were drunk, but every time the story was, it was an accident. And so no problems were solved. Maybe someone went to prison, but that was it. Um, But after the terror attack, the city and state got together and they made the harm impossible. They barricaded every entrance to this biking and walking path so that it couldn't happen again. And for me, it was this really hard realization that accident was sort of like a magic word of willful ignorance Uh, that allowed us to ignore preventable harm. Okay. Well, did they, uh, I wonder what took them so long to decide to do that? What was, why did they want to keep it open to vehicular traffic before was it it was just because of that terrorist act i assume that made them wake up and and do that they barricaded the entrances within weeks of the terrorist attack yeah. um and i think it was the idea that you know we we see uh, you know um these so-called unintentional acts through a different lens we see them as random um, and i think take a great deal of comfort in that because it means there's nothing wrong with the system and whether that system is you know capitalism or how we you know push bikes and pedestrians up this one path in manhattan like you know what the work that they did after the terror attack was work you know it cost money they had to rally they needed to design the space and figure out the best thing to do and you know in the face of an unintentional act, they could buy a lot of time to do that and to tell themselves, oh, oh, the real problem here was a drunk driver or the real problem here was this other driver who was lost. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I get it. Yeah, so that takes away the focus, but we'll come back to that. So maybe just talk about this word accident for a minute and how how you define it. It's a slippery word. It sounds kind of easy, uh, but I don't. I guess it's not. Um, you know, are you talking about things that are, quote, preventable or unintentional, you know, but in your analysis... Um, how are you define an accident? And then maybe we'll apply it to some contemporary examples. Yeah, so it is a tricky word because, right, it means a harmful event and a random event. And those two definitions obviously contradict one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also tend to, when we hear it, focus on unintentional more than any other definition, which, of course, drives us right back to where the people who were ignoring, you know, my best friend's death um, mm-hmm. were driven, which is they said saw this as like a human error problem. Um my definition of an accident is when human error occurs under dangerous conditions. Okay. And, and when we think about accidents, most of the time we obsess on the human error. We're super focused on who did what wrong. And that's purely psychological. That's a way that when we see something terrifying that seems random, we can say, oh, oh, there's the human error. There, That person zigged when they should have zagged. And I would never do that. So I'm safe. And it's just a way to make ourselves feel safe. But what we're doing then is we're ignoring the dangerous conditions because human error occurs all the time and it doesn't necessarily kill anyone. Right, um, right. You can slip, but if you slip on a wet floor, you're much less likely to be able to stop yourself and you're much more likely to get hurt. So the factor that you can control there, you can either tell people, don't slip, watch where you're walking, or you can make sure the floor is not wet. And when we control the dangerous conditions, what we do is we control the harm of accidents. And I think that's the real thing. We're never going to prevent people from making mistakes, but we can prevent mistakes from having deadly and disastrous consequences. Very good. Thank you. The story of your friend and then the terrorist activity reminds me of something you alluded to, this idea of being tricked by scale. 
when it comes to f- how folks view individual deaths versus larger scale death events. So what do you mean by that? And what impact could that have on someone's definition of what an accident actually is? Yeah, and it's, it's really tricky. And I hope, you know, anyone listening will start to pay a little more attention to uh, what they're missing, um, you know, by missing the ones and twos. So some around 225,000 people are killed in accidents in the U.S. every year. The vast majority of those deaths are sad and lonely ones. They, you die uh, all alone or maybe with one other person in a traffic crash of an overdose of a fall. But when we talk about accidents in the popular discourse, we're talking about the Norfolk Southern train derailments, right. the um, the condo collapse in Miami, you know, the apartment fire in the Bronx, um, these large scale disasters that draw the public attention. But the truth is, they then seem, these problems seem specifically horrible in the ways of the incident as it occurred. Um, and we miss the vast majority of the deaths. Um, you know, right now we're, um, Norfolk Southern's a great example. It was a horrible accident and we're paying a lot of attention to it now. There are inquiries and investigations, but the number of people killed and injured in small little releases of chemical emissions in Louisiana's Cancer Alley, those are all accidental chemical emissions mm-hmm. um, that we pay a lot less attention to because they're slow deaths. Um, they're deaths that happen in one and twos. They don't um, you know, draw the magnitude of a disaster. Interesting. They outnumber, I'm sure, um, many of these other large, you know, like the Norfolk Southern example. Um, yeah, that seems like it's it's kind of like if you want to uh, fight something or figure out uh, how to make something better, you have to be able to identify it accurately first. And that's if you just focus on the big and you miss the one and twos. Um, and I had, to be honest, I'd never really given the complexity of this notion of accidental much thought until I came across a discussion question I use in a class I teach called social problems. And there's a short segment the book publisher includes about the geography of car deaths. And it turns out that the states where people are more likely to die in a car wreck have a few things in common, and one of them is poverty. So I have my students get in groups and we try to come up with some links and they they really do pretty well. They start to run with it. And they'll bring things up like, you know, the cars are less likely to be properly maintained. Uh, those people might live and work in more stressful conditions and that affects how, when and where they drive. They might live in areas where rescue workers or hospitals are few and far between. And sure enough, in your book and in some interviews, you've talked specifically about car safety and its affordability or lack thereof. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, this is, um, and I'd like to point out what you're getting at um, in terms of accidents is not just true of cars. Um, you know, let's get back to cars, but accidents are supposed to be random. And if that were true, injury-related death would fall randomly across the country, but it doesn't. People living in poverty die most often. People of color die most often. But this is especially true for accidents where infrastructure make the difference between life and death. Mm. So we all pretty much across the board die of choking on food at the same rate across the country because there's nothing we can do in terms of policy to make us chew slower. Um, But when it comes to the safety of our homes, our roads, our workplaces, we see massive race and class-based differences, you know? So fires, uh, car crashes, um, drug overdoses, but also the very uh, wealth of any given state or county defines where it ranks in the likelihood of accidental death. Mm. And so if you look at something like cars, 
you're talking about, um, you know, there's something called the car death belt, and it correlates with state-based poverty, um, college education rates, um, you know, which of course all would correlate with how well they're repairing the roads, um, you know, and how um, accessible medical care is. Um, but because we're also in a moment in this country where the regulatory a- apparatus has been largely defanged, we see um, class divides in who has access to safety. So right now there's great technology, automated emergency braking. So if you hit the accelerator too hard and you're about to hit another car and your car has automatic emergency braking, your car will brake for you. But the uh, regulatory apparatus that holds automakers to account, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration refuses to pass comprehensive safety regulations to meet this technology. So that means you could have two speeding drivers, one rich and one poor. They both do the same thing wrong. They both speed. Um, But one has paid $10,000 extra to have automatic emergency braking on his car. And the other has an old car. Now, one of those people is going to die and the other is going to live. That poor driver is going to die. And we're going to call that death an accident, even though it's the direct product of regulatory negligence, which could force all automakers to... uh, make all cars safe. Mm -hmm. It's similar to the Norfolk Southern with the, I think it's, I forget what they call it, but some sort of electronic braking system as well that the company, you know, fought regulations pretty strongly against having that be required. But most of the experts, quote unquote, you know, transportation experts said that would have helped had they had this technology, but they weren't forced to. That's a great, yeah, it's a great point. And it also gets at the idea that accidents when things go wrong in these scenarios uh, it's layered it's not just the brake for example in the the norfolk southern case and you see the way that the regulatory apparatus could affect all of those different layers like for example one of the many regulatory agencies which is understaffed um, and barely able to do their jobs is osha And if you look at Norfolk Southern, for years, they had been maintaining the same safety rules for their employees while cutting staff, increasing hours, undermining unions. And for years, you know, workers are always the canary in the coal mine. Workers had been raising red flags about safety at Norfolk Southern because the truth is there's no such thing as efficiency in the corporate world. Efficiency just means we made things less safe so our shareholders could make more money and eventually something might go wrong down the road and then we'll have to throw our hands up and say, how could this have ever happened? Um, But um, it's a good example because those workers were raising the red flags, but OSHA can barely keep up with their work, that it's all these things could have prevented and Mm -hmm. added more layers of safety to protect, you know, the the folks in that Ohio and Pennsylvania towns that are now um, in such trouble, but without those safeguards, as those safeguards get pulled out, we increase the likelihood of something like this going wrong, kind of cascading into disaster. Thank you. Uh, and you did touch on this just a second ago, but a major theme of your work is fleshing out the differential impact of accidents uh, on marginalized groups. So be it people of color or the poor. Um, if you could give another example of that, say house fires or um, you know jaywalking or something like that, you have the, uh, data there that I don't have in front of me. Um, and then, has this always been the case? You think in America that those groups are gonna are gonna have a differential experience with what we call accidents, or is it a more recent trend? Um, yeah. So, just to name a few examples, black people in this country are killed in fires at twice the rate of white people. Indigenous people are struck by drivers at more than twice the rate of white people. 
people in West Virginia, which is a relatively poor state, are more than twice as likely to die by accident than people just across the state line in Virginia, huh. which, which tells us there's nothing random about these accidents. Rather, policy decisions and unregulated corporate power mean that risk is unequally distributed across the U.S. We're just not you know, we think about these as like a matter of personal responsibility, but it's a matter of risk exposure and we're not all exposed to the same risk. Um, And this has been true um, throughout U.S. history as as long as we've been keeping the data. Um, And, you know, the data, the data does get worse and better over time, but we can track all the way back to the industrial revolution that economic inequality um, tracks with accidental death risk. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, you know, it, most simply is a matter of exposure. You know, think about uh, an accident at a chemical plant. If there's an accident at the chemical plant and you live 50 miles from the chemical plant, that accident doesn't mean anything to you. Um, And, you know, the way it does is if you live five miles from the chemical plant Mm -hmm. and the difference between who lives near a chemical plant is a matter of race and a matter of class. For sure. Um, it defines what work is available to you, you know, where you live, what safety you have access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Environmental racism, environmental justice, you know, comes in that that land is cheaper or so they can afford to live there or they just put the plant there because, you know, the not in my backyard philosophy, they don't have the the political clout to keep it out, you know, essentially. So it's going to have that. What, what about uh, women? You know, in sociology, we, they're considered a marginalized group. Does this analysis extend? Are there sex gender differences at work here or, or uh, are men and women kind of equally uh, exposed to these kind of accidents? So to a degree, it's harder to parse the data because class and race are such strong barometers. Um, But one of the ways that we see um, uh, universal gender-based differences is that women are more likely to be killed in traffic crashes when they're inside a vehicle. And the reason for that is that um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which tests all vehicles, um, uses crash test dummies. And all of those crash test dummies are male-bodied. So there are no, you know, so-called female crash test dummies. So when we test a car for safety and modify it to be safer, we are not ever looking at female bodies. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It's it's so so interesting to me too. That's kind of an aside, but I had just read something recently about um, like women involved in in medical studies and scientific research, and they weren't required to be involved until 1993 not 1893, 1993. And so they're testing all these drugs for heart disease and, and, you know, whatnot on men only, you know, men only samples. And so, you know, this, the data is so, is so different. Yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. So a final theme of your work I'd like to touch on, and you just did a second ago is perhaps the most important for a sociological analysis of, of accidents. And that's that individual versus institutional approach. And one of the most important concepts in our field is uh, a C. Wright Mills term called the sociological imagination. It's like on the first chapter of every sociology book. And it's basically the awareness of the relationship between the individual and the wider society, like the private versus public. And similarly, Karl Marx wrote, people make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances given and transmitted from the past and in the present. So could you tell me more about this, this notion of personal responsibility, risk exposure, controlling your own environment, how that plays into here? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about this 
comforting psychology of the accident, you know, and then the truth is that when we see things go wrong, we are afraid and we would like to comfort ourselves. And the best way to comfort ourselves is to draw a line between ourselves and the harmed others out there. And a lot of times we're doing that based on these race and class lines, right? You know, based on some subtle internalized racism or some sternalized classism that says like, oh, people like them get hurt. Mm. Um, But it also exists, you know, I think on every level that we are trying to make space where we can feel protected, even if we aren't. But the truth is, if you look at how in this country, and I think this is important to note, the U.S. leads the wealthy world in accidental death. But this is a new thing. Accidental death in this country fell for decades as we built out the social safety net and our regulatory system. Mm -hmm. So So accidental death is skyrocketing and has been rising since 1992. And that rise is all new. It had been falling for decades prior to 1992, which tells you that we actually do know how to solve this problem. This problem is actually systemic when we address the dangerous conditions that we're exposed to. And so, you know, you look at stuff like automobiles used to be far more dangerous inside um, for people drive, riding in cars until we forced automakers to remove the dangerous conditions inside the automobile through the regulatory system. Um, the same thing is true for the workplace. The only you know, workers died in untold numbers in this country until we finally said, no, the people who own the workplace are liable for the safety of their workers. Um, And of course, enforce that with quite a bit of union power. Mm -hmm. Which is really tumbled over the years. Uh, Okay, then the last part really is how do we what what do we do for solutions in your in your book? And you just brought it up a little bit, this regulatory issue. So how do we how do we get back to that? path we were on where the safety nets were a little bit different, the regulatory agencies had more teeth and things like that. How do we reverse this trend we've seen since 92? I guess it was probably the 80s, right? With Reagan. And then you start to feel the effects of it a couple of, de- couple of years after that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, absolutely. That's what's going on here. This is the after effects of Reagan defanging our regulatory systems and dismantling the social safety net. And that latter part, the social safety net maybe is a little counterintuitive. So just talk it out. You know, um, The regulatory network can make the inside of my car safe. But if I have enough money in my pocket to eat and pay my rent, then I can also afford to buy a new safer car. So when we take apart the social safety net, we're exposing people to more dangerous conditions because they're more likely to have to live in a fire trap apartment that they know is unsafe or take a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. And so it affects all these different levels. Um, mm-hmm. But the only thing that's ever turned these things around um, is putting a cost on accidents for right. Reg- for uh, corporations, both before and after. So, you know, like workers' compensation and the regulation of the workplace. Um, And so what we need to do is turn around this Reagan-era conception of the regulation as somehow, you know, bad for business, which, by the way, has been debunked six ways to Sunday. Um, And we're seeing a little um, bravery from the Biden administration on that front. He just introduced new um, regulatory frameworks that would raise the threshold for the cost benefit analysis that Mm. Reagan required of regulations, that's a good sign. Um, But I would also encourage people because the federal government being what it is to work locally where they can. 
because there are a million ways to prevent accidental death and you're going to get a lot more movement if you're focused there. You can advocate for traffic calming and public transit expansions where you live because you're a lot less likely to get into a car accident if you're on the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, You can fight for safe injection sites and free naloxone because that is the key to reducing accidental overdose. Um, ADA accessibility like ramps and grab bars will affect the accidental fall epidemic. Um, Fire safety requirements like sprinklers and closing doors, self-closing doors in apartment buildings stop the harm of a fire. But, you know, the truth is this will all take a fight. So airbags and naloxone are the peak example. Airbags and naloxone were both invented in the 1960s. Airbags were not required in every American automobile until until 1998. And naloxone is still not mandated with every opioid prescription, even though it would prevent every single accidental opioid overdose. Wow. And I think it's important to understand airbags, naloxone, neither of these prevent you from taking mistakes. You can still drive like a nut, even though you have an airbag, you can still take too many drugs if you have naloxone. They just prevent you from dying. Mm-hmm. They prevent the harm of your mistakes, mm-hmm. which I think is really an ethical and a beautiful way to look at the world. Because mm-hmm. the truth is, is we're all going to screw up at some point, And I don't think any of us deserve to die for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. The, the, I, I get cynical. Uh, you know, fox guard in the chicken coop is kind of how I see it. Like we're wanting government to regulate business, but, you know, business has such a, a strong pull and say on government. Like, how do we, you know, how do we get them to police themselves, you know, basically. So it, it's, I like this notion of uh, at least taking smaller localized steps that, you know, might build, but as far as getting like a national public wave, I'm not really sure what that what that's going to take. But uh, so that's it for me. I appreciate you letting me uh, pick your brain here. Is there anything else we didn't get to you that you, that you think is important to address or do we, we hit the high points? I think we hit it. Yeah. That was great. All right. Well, great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It stands out on the highway. You've been listening to an interview with the investigative journalist Jesse Singer, author of the book There Are No Accidents, and I'm thankful for their time. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like it and all the usual podcast spots and reviews. I appreciate it. It's a free public sociology blog on social issues, and I think the more people that hear about it, the better. All my guests have enlightened me, and I hope they can enlighten others, so spread the word. And become a member if you're not already. You just have to create a username and password. Then you can comment on all the posts. The episode starts with Steve Earle's song, It's About Blood, his take on the 2010 West Virginia coal mine collapse, which also serves as the epigraph of Jesse's book. Playing behind me now is Almost Lost Detroit, Gil Scott Heron's take on the 1966 power plant incident in Detroit. Our social landscape is a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Send any questions or comments to me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening. And it ticks each night as the city sleeps. Or maybe seconds from annihilation. Yeah, but no one stopped to think about the people. Well, just how they would survive. And we were almost lost Detroit this time And how would we ever get over
in an 